Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today, getting into chapter 3 of our studies. If you're visiting with us, you have joined us several weeks into a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you are just visiting, you may wonder, what in the world are they doing in Ecclesiastes? Uh, Ecclesiastes is a pretty somber book in many respects. There's a lot about Ecclesiastes that is rather heavy, uh, almost dark in some respects, but dark and heavy for a reason. Uh, The preacher Solomon is giving us a bit of an apologetic. He's showing us what life is like without God in the picture. The repeated phrase in Ecclesiastes is about life under the sun or life under the heavens. And he shows us over and over again in many ways how bleak the picture is if God is removed. If there is nothing but what we see, it is a pretty dark picture. But today in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we begin to see some of the rays of gospel light poking through. As we see, probably the most famous of the passages in Ecclesiastes, this this poem on everything having a season and a time for every matter in chapter 3. So today in chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 15. You can find that if you picked up a Bible on the way in on page 554. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And before we read God's word, let's join together in prayer again and seek God's blessing on our studies. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we come proclaiming that you do all things perfectly. Our God is in the heavens, and you do all you please, and all you please is right. Help us to see that. Help us to believe that. Help us to rejoice that you are the one who works all things according to the counsel of your will, for the good of your people, for the glory of your name. Help us not only to know that, not to be resigned to that, but to rejoice in that truth. Help us to see and know that you are God and you are good. We pray in Jesus' name. We hear now our reading of God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 
I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study these truths together today. Uh, in 2014, a man by the name of Frederick Colting uh, unveiled his uh, invention to the world, introduced the world to the invention that he nicknamed the happiness watch. Now, the real name for his product is the ticker. That's with two Ks, in case you want to find it and buy one later, the ticker. Uh, and it's meant to be something like a personal version of the doomsday clock. Uh, it is uh, meant to be, at least, a sort of motivational countdown timer, uh, a reminder for you to take the most of every opportunity to make the most of every day that you have left here on earth. Well, before he founded the ticker company, Frederick Colting worked as a grave digger in Sweden, and, and he lamented the way that our modern society seems to spend so much time trying to ignore the reality of our mortality. And in his own words, he was convinced that if we were more aware of our own expiration date, we'd make better choices while we're alive. So enter the happiness watch. Uh, it begins before you purchase the watch with, uh, with a short survey, a survey about your personal data, your age, your family history, where you live, your, your lifestyle choices, your health habits, and that produces an expected day of departure, if you will. And that date is entered into the watch, and as you look at the watch above the local time, two rows of numbers count down incessantly. They never stop counting down the years, the months, the days, the hours, the minutes, and seconds left until you die. One reviewer called it a wrist-bound hourglass for your existence. And it's hard to tell. If, uh, if Solomon, our preacher, would have thought that the ticker was inspiring or uh, if he thought it was just tacky. Maybe the latter. But whether or not he would have bought the ticker, we know from our study so far in Ecclesiastes that, that he is all behind the idea of keeping one eye fixed on the day of our departure. For two chapters so far in Ecclesiastes, that's what we've seen from from Solomon as he's helping us to search through, through pleasure and work and wisdom. He's been wrestling with the fact of our mortality. Wrestling with the fact that death renders all of our achievements unsatisfying. All of our earthly wisdom ineffective. All of our earthly pleasures fleeting. He's been wrestling with the idea and the reality that the ever-grinding wheels of time carry us closer moment by moment to the unavoidable conclusion of our death. And it's against that backdrop now that Solomon is asking the question and has been asking the question, how can we find lasting joy if our time is running out? Well, enter the happiness calendar. The happiness calendar. Not, not, a, not a sort of kitschy uh, piece of uh, of, of timekeeping that will help you to, to memorize and to know the days that you have left. Rather, uh, the happiness calendar, I think, here in chapter 3 is a, 
a way of looking at all of our times, all of our seasons, all of our opportunities in existence as gifts of the God who orders all things perfectly. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we finally catch this breath of fresh air. We finally find a joy that's worth the time to pursue it. And that's what these verses are about. It's tempting maybe as we look at this passage, and as the ESV does, puts a, a heading right there in the middle. It might be tempting to separate our passage into two parts and to look at the poem first and, and then the poetry. But if we were to do that, we will miss the unity that we're supposed to have here uh, in the whole passage. And so I, I think it's really better to, better to see them together, to understand the poem at the beginning through the explanation that Solomon gives us in verses 9 to 15. And that means that what we really need to do is, is to begin and to zero in on the theological point that Solomon is making here. And the point that he's making, the, the big idea, the big point of the whole passage and of our study together today is that all our seasons come from the hand of our Creator. That's also our first point today, that all our seasons come from the hand of our Creator. Now, even at first glance, this poem here in verses 2 to 8 confronts us with both simplicity and breadth. Simplicity in the sense that as you read it, it reads more like a phone book than a mystery novel. Right? Simple pairs of this and that, a time for this, a time for that, a time for that, a time for this, and it's a list, a catalog of the things that we encounter as we live and exist in this world. And there are some correlations, certainly between the pairs themselves, but beyond the individual pairs, the catalog continues without much of a narrative going forth. And so it just continues. And you might be forgiven for thinking that Solomon is engaged in a sort of a word association game. Like he's looking at a Rorschach test and saying, oh, life is this, life, life is that, life has these things. There's a simplicity in all of this. But that simplicity here in the poem gives way to the all-consuming breadth of the subject. The, the preacher has carefully chosen these corresponding pairs. In fact, he's laid them out perfectly for us. There are 14 pairs, twice the biblical perfection of seven. He's given us 14 pairs of equal and opposite reactions, if you will. Boundary markers at the start and the finish of, of various things, opposing ideas that, that capture everything between them. It's a poetic device called a merism. It's like when the Bible says that God is the creator of heavens and earth. Like when it says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, it means that God created everything from top to bottom and everything in between. It means that Jesus is all-powerful and all we need from A to Z without skipping a single letter. It's this idea of this all-encompassing nature of our life in this poem. And so when Solomon says that our existence under heaven, uh, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And at the end, there is a time for peace and a time for war. He means everything in between as well. He means, actually, that our, our lives are full of, of varied and, and complex experiences. Over the course of your life, you'll find yourself dancing and embracing and weeping and burying. There will be virtues to love. There will be vices to hate. There will be sins to mortify. There will be fruits to produce. 
There will be estranged children in your family who are worth pursuing. There will be lost possessions that will be worth giving up and, and not worrying about anymore. Well, we could go on, but Solomon already has. Simply put, our lives are always moving from one season to another, from one experience to the next, from, from one opportunity missed to another one that we can grasp. Robert Frost said that he could summarize everything he had learned about life in three words. It goes on. And some of you parents of adult children like to remind those of us with younger children of how fleeting time is and how quickly you move from a season of diapers to a season of diplomas. And you tell us, well, make sure you make the most of it because it's gone quickly, and it's true. There's a time for everything. So it is here. The wheel of time rolls on, and it pulls us along with it, whether we like it or not. We never have time to stop the clock long enough to get comfortable with where we are, or to advance the clock to where we would rather be. Now, if that's all the truth we could find in this passage, we might be tempted to think that this is just one more mark of the monotony of the universe. You remember chapter 1. The sun rises, the sun sets, the wind blows around in circles, the water's always flowing, always flowing, but the seas are never full. This idea that there's this repetitive, always uh, progressing nature, but nothing much ever happens, nothing much is ever accomplished. Actually, many modern scholars, I would say from my study, most modern scholars, take a pretty pessimistic view of this poem in chapter 3, just along those lines. Right? They, they say that, that, it's, that it's all about just being drug along with our experiences, the fact that we can never stop. Even one of my favorite commentators called this poem the tyranny of time. But our experiences aren't lived under the tyranny of time. We do not actually uh, follow the impersonal dominion of the continued sequence of existence and events that occurs in an apparently irreversible succession. Thank you, Wikipedia. Our lives are lived by the hand of the God who created time and existence itself. All of our seasons unfold according to His plan. All of our times march according to his purposes. And that brings us to the beautiful truth that we find in verse 11. That God has made everything beautiful in its time. You notice some of the, the parallelism there in, in the beginning, but, but we, we see this here, this truth, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, if you want to quibble, we could quibble over the language and we could say that actually uh, the word beautiful is better translated appropriate. But let's not quibble over that because every engineer and every programmer in the room knows that there's something beautiful about things appropriately placed. Elegant solutions to the problem in front of you. Appropriate things are beautiful things. And so the Lord has made everything fit in just his order at just the right time in the most beautiful and simplistically beautiful way possible. That's the idea here. Now again, we, we learn in, in verse 1 that for everything there is a season. There's a time for every matter. And then it's in Verse 11, we find that everything comes from God. 
that he's established his seasons, his appropriate seasons for the events that occur in history. And that means that all of our planting and all of our gathering and all of our seeking and all of our speaking flow according to God's perfect providence. He is the unseen mover behind all of our motions. It is, as our shorter catechism reminds us, that all of our seasons, all of our times unfold according to God's most wise holy and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Another thing you notice here is that Solomon is bringing back concepts that we've seen already in Ecclesiastes to to examine them under new data. Verse 10, right before our our truth in verse 11, verse 10 is a near direct quotation from chapter 1, verse 13, where there he told us that he's seen the business God has given, and it is an unhappy business. Now, verse 9 is this recurring question. What gain is there under heaven? What do we have that lasts? What continues beyond us? Is there anything bigger than we are? Then both of those verses, both of those ideas are answered by the conclusion of verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. The business that we engage in under heaven isn't unhappy, but it's appropriate. The gain that we desire for ourselves redounds to the glory of God's unchanging purposes. And it's a beautiful truth. It's not a resignation to some sort of fatalism. It's not an impersonal, incidental string of random events and chance. There is a God who works and moves and leads his people. There is a God who has a plan and a purpose, he tells us in the New Testament, for the fullness of time. A plan to unite all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So the Lord of time has decreed that every step and every season along the way, he will move in the direction of his perfect gathering, his perfect uniting. Now then again, we're maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. There's a beautiful truth in verse 11, but verse 11 doesn't end with a beautiful truth about God's perfect timing. Solomon goes on and he adds to this truth a personal problem. He says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here's the recipe for our frustration under the sun. Our hearts are filled with eternity, and our minds are clouded by our frailty. He's put eternity into our hearts. What does that mean, by the way? What does Solomon mean by that? It could be that he means eternity in the way that we encounter it in the New Testament. Eternity in the sense of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternity when when all of our tears will be dried and all of our sorrows will be answered by His grace. Eternity in the sense of the time when all of our seasons will be collapsed into one glorious eternal today in His presence. It could be that He means that. I think actually in the context it's more likely that He means that we have a longing to see the whole picture of how our times fit together into God's eternal plan just like God sees it. We want to know eternity. We want to know what God is doing in eternity. We want to know how we fit into eternity. It's part of what separates us from the lower creatures. 
know, Proverbs sometimes tells us to go and consider the ant. The ant stores up uh, for, in harvest for winter time, and there are animals that prepare for hibernation in winter, and that happens. But when they do it, they do it on instinct. They do it to survive the next winter, the next frost, the next season, where we build empires. We humans pursue freedoms, not just for ourselves, not even just for our children, but for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. We want to build societies that will have an impact and an effect long after we are gone. It's what separates us from the lower creatures. We want to know how our small part in the world plays into the grander scheme of what's happening. And when you acknowledge that there's a God who moves time and creation according to his design, it brings up in us this, this almost unavoidable desire to figure it out. To know how the Lord of time is weaving all of your individual stories into his eternal plan. We want to figure out what God is doing, but we can't. We're time bound. We're finite. We're stuck in this progression of one season into another season, of one time into another time. So if our yearning for the eternal is what separates us from the creatures, our inability to grasp eternity is what separates us from God. Try as we might, believe as we should, we cannot search out all things from beginning to end to know what God is up to exactly. We cannot know exactly how and why he's directing each moment of our lives the way that he is. Isn't this the lesson that Job had to learn? The Lord shows up in chapter 38 and he says, Dress yourself like a man and I will ask and you will answer me. And the first question is, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? God eternal speaks to finite man. This is the lesson, the reminder that the apostles needed to hear. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There's a beauty in this truth in verse 11 that all our seasons are ordered by our creator. He's made everything beautiful in its time, but we still long to know what we cannot comprehend. And therein lies the frustration that takes us all the way back to the garden at the beginning. What was the temptation? If you have this, you will know what only God knows. If you seek this created thing, if you find fulfillment in this object, in this pursuit, in this doing, in this acquisition, you will become like God. You will transcend your time-bound nature and you will be like Him. And then from that first distrust that God is somehow keeping something good from us, from that first distrust stems a thousand empty pursuits as we reach for a godlike knowledge that we should not have. It leads to a million attempts at significance and eternity that leave us struggling against the weight of our finitude, against the ever-looming curtain call on the play of our lives. 
It also brings us back to Solomon's search. How can we find lasting joy if our time is running out? Now, in this passage, Solomon gives us two takeaways, two application points. You notice both in verse 12 and then again in verse 14, Solomon says, I perceived. In other words, here's what I've learned. Here's here's my takeaway from all that I've seen of God's interaction in the world. Here's what I can tell you. Here's what you can put in your back pocket and take away with you. I've, I've perceived two ways that we can find lasting joy inside of our fleeting place in God's eternal plan. Now, it might annoy those uh, programmers and engineers, but actually we're going to reverse them. We're going to take them uh, in opposite order. We're going to start in verse 14, because I believe that until we learn to do what Solomon tells us in 14, we'll never learn to do what Solomon tells us in verse 12. So, so take a look there. How can we find lasting joy while our time is running out? Verse 14, Solomon tells us that joy comes as we live in godly fear. This is our second point today, that joy comes as we live in godly fear. Read it, verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. The Lord's work is perfect. Not only does he order everything that comes to pass all our times and seasons, but unlike us, he works works that last forever. What God decrees is unchangeably established. There is no one who can give him counsel. There is no one who can stay his hand. There is no one who can stand between what God desires in his creation and what he does in his creation. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. And the proper response of created man, created woman, is humble, godly fear. The fear of the Lord. That's what he's telling us. God has done it so that it would produce a response in us so that we would fear before him. This is the beginning of the anti-venom that takes away Satan's sting in our hearts. If our frustration under heaven comes from Uh, from desiring to go beyond our limits, if it comes from attempting to control depths of wisdom that only God can fathom, then the answer to that problem has to begin with the humility to accept that God is God and we are not. And once you realize that, it changes the way you live. Actually, it changes what you love. It changes what you long for. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We find elsewhere in the wisdom books in the Old Testament. And and in case you're wondering, no, we've, we've read before where Solomon talks about wisdom, but we had to understand that he was telling us something that we're used to experiencing when we, when we encounter wisdom in the scriptures. But here, this is a textbook variety. This is the fear of the Lord as we know it. This is the first of five places in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon teaches us about the fear of the Lord, and they're all one beginning step to get to that final message in chapter 12, the end of the matter, fear the Lord and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is a step in that direction. 
This is the beginning of a life of wisdom. This is the fear of God, not some paralyzing terror before a vengeful God. This is a deep reverence that makes us willing, makes us wise to choose the things that glorify the Lord. In Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord is an exclamation point. Or it seems like every other thought ends with an ellipsis. It just sort of trails off. But the fear of the Lord is the punctuation that we need. Within Ecclesiastes, maybe here's a better analogy. Within Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord is, is like sitting at home, lonely and bored while your neighbors have a party. And it's loud and exciting and it's full of laughter. And you wish you could be a part of that party until you realize that if you go out and stand on the trampoline and jump in just the right way, you can peek over the fence, you can see what's going on. I'm not encouraging you to spy on your neighbors, but I think you get the idea that the fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes is this this transcendent leap to see something bigger than us, to see something beyond our, our lives and our work and our earthly pleasures. It leads us to see the Lord and and His work and to understand that we are a part of that. The fear of the Lord gives us a glimpse of the life well ordered. It shows us the promise of work and pleasure and ambition that are part of something bigger than ourselves. And if you want to know what godly fear looks like in practice, read the Gospels. It's interesting that once a year, At Christmas, we take a few weeks to focus on the mystery of the Incarnation. The Son of God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We celebrate it as a mark of the humility of our Savior that Almighty God took on flesh and lived a mortal life like we do. I think one of the most mind-bending aspects of the Incarnation is the miracle that the God who created time and existence entered time. He came and lived as we do from one moment to the next moment, from one season to the next season, and he trusted the Lord in each of those seasons. He's lived as one who was under God's dominion, who humbled himself, who lived as one in the fear of the Lord. That's what it says in In the New Testament, in Galatians, that when the fullness of time had come, Christ was born of a woman born under the law. He was born humbly. He was born under God's precepts. He had to live in the fear of the Lord day by day by day, moment by unfolding moment. And it's true that he did it to give us an example of what that kind of fear looks like, but he also did it to set us free. How's that verse continue? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. We're set free by by our Savior who came and lived in constant fear of the Lord, a reverence of his Father that always chose what was right. And he bids us to come and follow him, but he also reminds us that he has gone where we cannot. He's gone in in perfect perfection as our Savior and as our substitute. I think Solomon is leaning in this direction. The Holy Spirit is, is drawing us through here, telling us that this is the proper response. 
to the times that the Lord has ordered, that, that joy comes when we submit ourselves to God's kingship, just like our Savior did. Joy comes when we live in godly fear. And then finally, joy comes as we walk in daily faith. Joy comes as we walk in daily faith. Here we take a step back to verse 12. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, last week while I was away, Pastor Andrew preached to the end of chapter 2, and that means that if you were here, you've already heard a little bit about uh, the first of Solomon's carpe diem passages. Eat, drink, find enjoyment. I'm glad that Pastor Andrew preached that, so that means that I don't have to repeat everything he's already said. You already know a little bit about God's, God's gifts in the daily lives that he's given us. But I do want to point out that some scholars, really the same ones who take a negative view of Solomon's poem at the beginning, they also like to poo-poo all this talk about finding joy and enjoyment and, and eating and drinking here, where, where Solomon talks about doing good as we live. The way they see it, it's, it's all kind of a letdown, right? We're expecting big things. Here comes mighty, wise Solomon. He's armed with Icarus wings on this search for meaning and significance. And isn't it a shame that he never even gets off the ground? He just comes back and he says, I don't know. Here's what I found. Do a good job. Eat your meat. Drink your drinks. Have fun while it lasts. And they say it's all a bit of a letdown. One sad-mouthed scholar says it this way. He says in verse 12, Kohelet finds a way forward that is nevertheless provisional and ultimately unsatisfying. It makes you wonder if scholars like that, commentators like that, know what a personal struggle it is to entrust your life and your eternal future to someone other than yourself. It makes you wonder if, if commentators like that know what a victory of faith it is to do your work and keep your head down and trust that you have a glorious inheritance awaiting you, kept unfading, undefiled in the heavens, that your hands have not created, something that you have not done for yourself. It makes you wonder if they know how delightful it is to do a mundane task with excellence because you trust that you do it for the Lord and not for yourself. Provisional. Unsatisfying. Solomon says this is the gift of God. It's the gift of God to say that you can trust in the Lord in the seasons and the times that he brings into your life. In faith, you can stop trying to establish your cosmic importance by the things that you can acquire and achieve and experience. Daily faith makes it possible to rest in the Lord. Really, to, to rest. You recognize how often gospel truth is portrayed in the scripture as a picture of resting. Why is it the Lord has commanded us to keep one day every seven where we do not do our work? Can you imagine how devastating that was in an agrarian society where these commandments were given? It was a picture of the gospel, the good things. No, no, no. Don't do your work, but rather trust me and rest. And so this is a promise here that we can receive from God's hand 
all that he has for us today. I don't know what today looks like for you. It may not seem grandiose. It may not seem existentially significant. And when you gather up all the todays of your life, all the seasons and the times, I bet a lot of them don't even feel comfortable. But the reality here is that we can trust the Lord enough to know that whatever times, whatever seasons he brings to his children, they're all ordered by his perfect providence. And the classic illustration here of of trusting God's providence is the picture used by countless pastors through the ages. It's the picture of a tapestry. And God is, is the, uh, the wonderful weaver who ties and warps all of the threads in just the right way to make the picture that glorifies his goodness while we're on the backside of the picture seeing only a portion, seeing, seeing snarls and knots of thread and a mismatched array of colors. And it looks to us like we're not sure what's happening and faith, we're told, is what allows us to see the picture from God's vantage point. I prefer, actually, Jerry Bridges' analogy. He says we're like people who are walking along a road surrounded by a fog, and the curtain of mist only ever recedes enough to take the next step in faith. And not surprisingly, our Lord Jesus is also the perfect picture of this kind of faith in action. The New Testament, in, in Hebrews 12, calls Jesus the author and the finisher the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it's true in the sense that our faith comes from him. It's a, it's a gift of him. He authors our faith by the work of his spirit dwelling in us, but Christ is also the author, the founder of our faith, because he is the faithful one par excellence. He is the one who exhibited perfect trust in the Father in the daily details of his life. He trusted the Father to provide for him. He trusted the Father to protect him. He trusted his Father to fulfill his ministry, to draw all his sheep to their great shepherd, and to do it perfectly. And then as his accusers descended, as their false accusations turned to fists and whips and nails and thorns, even then, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And you know how Jesus' faith relates to our daily faith, don't you? Some might be tempted to say, well, if Jesus trusted his Father, then we can trust our Father, and that makes Jesus our example. Far better to say, because Jesus trusted his Father, we are able to trust our Father, because that makes Jesus our substitute. That's the point of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where, where Paul channels Ecclesiastes, and he says that God has subjected all of the world to futility in hope, and he goes on to tell us that if God is for us, who can be against us? And we look at our changing time and our seasons and our circumstances, and we say, where's the proof, Paul? How can you be so sure that God is for us? And he points us to Christ. The proof is in Jesus' faith unto death. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? 
That means you can trust him. Christ's faith unto death is proof that the Father can be trusted. You can trust him for all your seasons. You can trust him for all your times, for all your circumstances, times of tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sores, so, time, so too times of quiet labor, times of daily pleasures, family joys, family sorrows, seasons of laughter, seasons of lightness, times of mourning, times of loss, times of growth in grace. Seasons of wilderness wanderings where the Lord brings you on meandering paths back to himself yet again. You can trust him. It's a beautiful truth that all our seasons are ordered by our creator. And if you know the the creator who gave his son, it makes it possible to live in godly fear. To walk in daily faith because that's where joy is found in the gift of the Lord. To join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the way that even in shadows and in preparation, it points us in the direction of our Savior. We pray, oh Lord, that you would make us to trust you. Thank you for Christ who entrusted himself to you, continued doing good, allowed those who persecuted him and hated him even to put him to death, not defending himself, but trusting you. We thank you for the gift that we find in Jesus that makes all our daily gifts come alive because we see them as good gifts from the Father who gives us all things in Christ. Help us, O Lord, to trust you for our times and our seasons. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.